all to the eight. We are on part two of a two-part series titled The Unapproachable. When I was in, uh, in high school, I was in chorus. Um, and I, I, I love music. I love, I love singing. Maybe I had an alter, uh, alternative motive because it's majority girls, not that many guys. So that was another motivation to join chorus. But anyway, I joined chorus and I'll never forget it. Mr. Smith, he was, was my t our teacher. And he said, guys, I, I want us to, to share something exciting that one of, one of our, our students was saved this past weekend. He was saved. And, and, and everybody, everybody started clapping. Yes, you got saved. And he's like, he declared that Jesus is his savior. And I remember thinking as an Orthodox Christian, I'm like, uh, I, am I saved? Like, I, I don't remember ever going to my church and like someone tell me, am I saved or not? And I, and I got concerned. I, I didn't have the guts to go back to mom and dad and say like, am I saved? I didn't want to deal with the, the, the answer. But I remember it was like a big deal for my friends in chorus and everyone was clapping. And this was like at a public school, maybe times have changed, but this was in Duluth. I had, and, 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 and like everyone was clapping. It was a big deal that he was saved. There is nothing wrong with that tradition. There is nothing wrong with that version of Christianity. So I'm not saying that at all. But sometimes we fall into the trap of reducing our pursuit of God to an, a one instant moment. I was saved when I, when I was 11 years old, when I came to the altar, when I experienced this, and I was saved from that moment. Sometimes we reduce a relationship to a, a pinpoint of time as if it is like a ticket to heaven. This is my instant moment that I got my fast pass, my ticket straight to heaven. And what we've been talking about here at the eight for last Sunday and this Sunday is the idea of the reduction or the dilution of Jesus, the Christ, the reduction or the dilution of Jesus, the Christ. And believe me, this is not about one version of Christianity, all versions of Christianity and culture as a whole. We love to reduce the idea of Jesus instead of him being king. That's a little bit too much. That is packaged with surrendering and humility. Uh, uh. But a religious figure, someone who is nice and says a lot of nice things, who makes me better at life, we've kind of reduced Jesus to just that. So it's not just necessarily just a Protestant or, or a Reformed version of Christianity. This exists in some shape or form of all versions of Christianity. And unfortunately, it has started to creep into an Orthodox view that my pursuit of God is being reduced to this sacrament, this time, th this little thing I served, and, and whatever the case might be. Sometimes we reduce a relationship and we reduce Jesus, the Christ. The reality is that us believing in Christ, believing is designed to be converted to participating. Regardless if you are all into believing in Jesus, and it's totally fine if you are not, but if you are, the original design is not for us to say, I believe, and just keep it at that. The original design is to believe, is designed to be converted to participating. For those who attended the liturgy, something I mentioned is Jesus made it very clear to the disciples and to others who wanted to pursue him. He didn't ask them, do you believe? No. He said, follow me. He wanted them to put their pursuit of him into action. Apply this to any other aspect of life. For those who are married, you don't say, I believe in marriage. Cool. That's great that you believe. I believe I can fly. Cool. You can believe all you want, but unless it puts into action, then it's useless. So I can say, I believe in, I believe in marriage. I be okay. 
But do you put it, do you, do you surrender your ego? Do you push down your ego? Do you have a spirit of vulnerability? Do you invest face-to-face -face time in order to engage in the sacrament of marriage, in this union, in this sacramental union? So believing is one thing, but it is designed to be converted to participating. Even in celebrating the Eucharist, when we celebrate the divine liturgy, we say, I believe, I believe, I believe. We make it three times, and this is part of like a very Jewish uh, way of talking, that anytime you say something three times, it gives it more emphasis. And obviously, Islam has carried that on as well. But anytime you say something three times, you're giving it a tremendous amount of emphasis. So when we say, I believe that this is the body and blood of Christ, it's not for the sake of us saying, I believe. No, it's because I believe I'm going to now convert this into participating and abiding in him, and then I'm going to break myself in order to give life to others. This is the whole idea of believing. We have converted, we have separated believing into participating as two separate things. But in the first century view of those who decided to pursue Jesus, uh, believing and participating were the same thing. This is a unique first century style icon following the Coptic style of, ri of writing an icon of St. Luke which is one of the four gospels, one of the four record accounts we have of Jesus's life. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke is very unique as he was a physician by trade and he was an artist, as you can see as far as what's in his hand. And he gives a very unique style of writing the life of Jesus. He does it almost as if he's doing a research paper. He actually writes kind of two volumes. He writes the Gospel of Luke and then the book of Acts. So two books that we find in the New Testament. So in his style of writing, he does like this research paper who is actually being funded. He does this comprehensive research paper to interview different people about the life of Jesus. He, they, he, St. Luke wanted to find out what was his birth all about. And then he wanted to do extensive research. He was funded by a gentleman, a rich gentleman by the name of Theophilus. And he was doing a tremendous research to find out more about who Jesus is. And I want to share with you, again, in America as a whole, we reduce Jesus to a religious figure. Nice guy, said a lot of nice things. Maybe I want a little bit of Jesus in my life, but not that much. Makes me feel good, warm, and gushy inside. So a little bit, but not too much, okay? So maybe this is our high-level view. I'm very being very generic and stereotyping. But at a high level, this is our pursuit of Jesus at a high level from different worldviews. This is how many would view Jesus. How was Jesus first addressed? How was Jesus first addressed in the records that we have of the Gospels? And here is what St. Luke, after his research, this is what he writes. But the angel said to her, St. Mary, Archangel Gabriel came to announce and give a message to St. Mary. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. From the first introduction to capturing the reality of the God-man, to, 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 to encompass the embodiment of the uncreated being now in flesh, he was described in the same breath by the angel from a messenger from heaven as him being royalty, of him being a king, not a good luck charm, not a religious figure, but a divine royal king that he will reign. We, th th this is the, the, the initial image of who St. Mary was called to bear. Now let's look at, and so this is Luke's gospel. Now let's look at Matthew. 
who was a first eyewitness. And here's St. Matthew's record of, 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 of what happened, of the unfolding of the record of Jesus' birth. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, we know them as wise men, from the east came to Jerusalem. Astrology has pointed them to the birth of a king. And they asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They saw something transcendent, something different about the star. And because of their humility, because of their curiosity, they wanted to pursue who this, this, this star is reflecting the birth of what king? This has to be the fulfillment of Judaism, of this being the birth of the king of the Jews. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, he asked all these experts, he asked them, where is the Messiah to be born? King Herod, is. we can relate to him in this one aspect. We get disturbed the more we walk toward Jesus. We are disturbed. We are off, like, I hate to change this aspect of my life. We are thrown off balance. That's why for many of us, it's better to say, you know what? I'm a good person. I'm going to do what's good, but I'm going to take, I'm going to make sure I'm 100 feet away from Jesus. That's more convenient, right? We're all about convenience. We love Amazon Prime. We love everything to be at our door. We love convenience. But the idea of, of walking toward a king, we get disturbed. And here is one of the few times we see where King Herod got it. He understood that this birth of this child is not a religious figure. It's not just a good luck charm, but he is the anointed one, the Messiah. This will literally change the course of world history. And King Herod got it. Maybe for many of us, maybe we get the totality of who God is and we want to embrace him. Maybe we want to embrace the beauty and richness of who Jesus is in our life. But to embrace him, we get a little bit disturbed. He sent them to Bethlehem, King Herod. He sent the Magi, the wise men, to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. You know what King Herod is? He's so smart. The guy is so smart, so intelligent. And history tells how smart he was. He is so smart on knowing how to do all the ritual stuff. Sure, worship a king, king of the Jews. Sure, I can worship. He knows how to do all the superficial religious things. But internally, to make him my king? No, no thanks. I'll pass. We fall into this trap, or at least I can fall into that trap. It's easy to do all the external things of, of what does it mean to be to be a follower of Jesus. I can do all the external things, but internally, to surrender, to say that he is my savior, he is my king, and I'm going to realign my logic, my life decisions based on the totality of this royal king being born, king of the ages, a child, this requires a little bit different level of engagement or humility. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, rightfully so, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity. You and I would see King Herod as being so cruel, like he would kill all the boys just to make sure that, that, that no one is jeopardizing his power of him being king. You, you would think that, you, you and I would say that, man, that's, that's extreme. I mentioned this before, and I'm telling you, nobody wakes up and says, I think today would be a great day to cheat on my spouse. Nobody says, I think today would be a great day to go like steal. I think today would be a great day for me to do like this extreme. Nobody says that. 
it begins small and it begins to empower them. Not empower them, it, oh, it consumes them. It takes control of them. And it gets to this point where then they look at themselves in the mirror and be like, how did I get myself to this point? Here's King Herod. Because of his dominance, because of his wanting to make sure everything is in control in his life. You and I want everything to be under control. We hate uncertainty. We want to know now. We, we hate the idea that there's some things I might not know. We want everything to be known right now. And he got to the point, because the, how tox, toxic this disease was in him, he got to the point where he's able to kill innocent boys just to make sure that there's no one else jeopardizing his kingdom. Why would God allow innocent kids to die now with the birth of Jesus, his son? This seems so cruel. Cruelty and injustice is embedded into the very fabric and reality and the arrival of the unapproachable in flesh. Cruelty and injustice. The timeless question, why do bad things happen, right? From the get-go, from the birth of the king, of God's son, that we see there's cruelty and injustice. This, you and me, now, 2,000 years later, this shakes us up. This, understandably, makes people deconvert. This makes people say, I'm kind of done with this whole Jesus Christian thing. It was cute when I was young, but I'm done. It's easy for them to say that because they look around and they see injustice and cruelty happening, and they say, that's why I'm not going to do anything. Like, I'm, I'm done with the whole Jesus thing. But in the first century, this is what attracted them. This is what attracted people to follow Jesus. When they saw cruelty and injustice, they actually saw cruelty and injustice to their savior, to Jesus. They saw the worst thing happen to the best possible person. And they said, wow, even with all the darkness, I find life in him. This is what made Christianity. This is what made Jesus. This is what made people follower of the way. This was the, the cultish name of, of followers of Jesus in the beginning. This is what made people follow the way so attractive. It's because even with all the hardship and pain and trials and persecution around them, they found life. They found rest in their Savior. It wasn't the opposite. They didn't look at pain and cruelty and injustice and say, oh, you know, th this is why I'm kind of done with the whole Jesus thing. No, this is what attracted them even more. Because even in the midst of darkness, they found light in him. And there was a certain unique title given to followers of this. Some people titled a political movement. Some people titled it a cult. And it was kind of given this code name of being followers of the way. People who initially followed Jesus were initially called followers of the way. And there was a unique term given to them in the city of Antioch, in which St. Luke records for us. And this unique title, to set them apart, to show where their allegiance belongs to, these people who decided to surrender their ego, their logic, and to pursue a worldview based on the God-man, they were initially titled Christians. And this was a bold term for them to use. Some people who were given the title Herodians, or people who follow who is Caesar, people who follow different kings. But there was a group, an underground group, who got together in secret places and broke bread. In other words, had liturgy. And they were initially titled Christians. And this was such a radical outlaw group, and they were so different. And, and people said, oh, those are the Christians over there. It was so radical in, that, in the first century because this group did not follow cultural norms. They, they, this group did not follow a caste system, but they went to go to, to help those who were less fortunate. This was so radical in the first century. Maybe now it's become embedded and, and has kind of seeped into every worldview. But in the first century, this was so foreign that even the wealthy and, 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 and those who are poor were together to the point that St. Peter, a first, a first eyewitness and one of the 12 original disciples, 
would write down to them that we are all joint heirs of the kingdom. This was so radical. It removed any, uh, your, your career status, your label, your gender, all that was removed. All of them were, were viewed as being equal and all labeled as being followers of Christ or Christians. This was the kingdom in whom they were pursuing. They declared Jesus not as a reduced religious figure, a nice guy who did a really cool stuff and gave us free lunch and did a lot of awesome miracles. No, they viewed him as their king. This is why in the model prayer in which Jesus gave those followers of him, he told them, I want you to pray this model 42nd prayer. Let this be your template of how you come and talk to your father. And he gave them the Lord's prayer, our father. And this is where you and I say, your kingdom come. We're yearning for his kingdom. Not our kingdom, not what we think is best, but we're pursuing a kingdom which transcends this logic and transcends this temporal world. You and I pray, for yours is the kingdom. It's your kingdom, which is the essence of perfection, that we're asking for your kingdom to be a reality in the brokenness in my life. The question I asked you last week, as elementary as it might seem, as you might be tempted to jump to answer yes, what is your answer to this question? Is Jesus my king? You would say yes. But what does that look like? And it's totally fine if you cannot embrace this question. Maybe the prerequisite question should be, should you entertain the idea of Jesus being your king? What does that look like? It's a simple question but it radically changes how I view conflict, pain, hardship, even my purpose in life by this one question. One of my favorite parts in which St. Matthew records in the record of Jesus's birth is that the Magi, the wise men, after experiencing their king, St. Matthew writes down that they went home another way when they experienced the king of all ages as a helpless child, life was never the same for them again. For you and me, we try so hard to try to make it put in together. My own world and what I do and what I think is good or bad, I try to fight up my moral code and I try to let it dance right next to Jesus's moral code. I try to make both you know, coincide so perfectly. You know, now I'm doing puzzles with my, with my five-year-old. When you're trying, you get so aggravated trying to fit this puzzle with this puzzle, and you want it to make it fit, and you try to push so hard. It's not a kid thing. We do this in our own life. We try to make sure it fits and do everything. I'm always right. They're always wrong. I'm going to try to fit. And then we can't sleep at night because we try so hard to follow our logic. We end up trying to follow our kingdom, our will, my will, as opposed to Thy will. I want to share with you now, as we close, a beautiful letter written by a fourth century uh, church father by the name of St. Gregory of Nyssa. He's actually the brother of St. Basil. So St. Basil, for those who know, is that's the main liturgy that we pray every Sunday. So his brother, St. Gregory, uh, he was actually a, a strong philosopher. He was actually tremendously influenced by Alexandrian thought from Egypt because there was a philosopher by the name of Origen. 
Origen was a philosopher who tremendously influenced St. Gregory's thought process, and he is writing now this letter to a monk who is asking St. Gregory the question, how can I attain perfection? What did you want to love to answer to that? How can I be perfect? Maybe you and I don't word the question that way, but we say, I want, to, I want to really master this. I want to be better in my career. I want to be better in the X, Y, Z. You name the thing that's on your heart that you want to attain perfection. Here is a monk that comes to St. Gregory and he asks, how can I attain perfection? And I want to share with you, if you can give me five minutes of your attention, the elaborate and rich answer in which St. Gregory gives as describing what does it mean not to, to just see Jesus and kind of be one foot in, but to surrender to being titled I am a Christian. I want to share with you what St. Gregory said. Follow along with me. Our good master, Jesus Christ, bestowed on us a partnership, a partnership in his revered name so that we get our name from no other person connected with us. And if one happens to be rich and well-born or of lowly origin and poor, or if one has some distinction from his business or position, all such conditions are of no avail because the one authoritative name for those believing in him is that of Christian. Here, from the like, we see this in the first century, we see this in the fourth century. It has nothing to do with our status. And, and you know, what do you do for a living? It's nothing to do with any of that. It doesn't have to do with your marital status, it doesn't have to do with your career, it doesn't have to do with your past. There is an authoritative name in which we are invited to partner with Jesus. St. Gregory continues. Now, now since this grace was ordained for us from above, it is necessary, first of all, for us to understand the greatness of the gift so that we can worthily thank the God who has given it to us. Then, it is necessary to show through our life that we ourselves are what the power of this great name requires us to be. If you say you are a Christian, and totally fine if you're not all into having that label on you right now. But the question should be, what does that require if that will be my label? The greatness of the gift of which we are deemed worthy through the partnership with the master becomes clear to us if we recognize the true significance of the name of Christ. So that when our prayers, so, so when in our prayers we call upon the Lord of all by this name, we may comprehend the concept that we are taking into our soul. Paul, who, who wrote a good portion of the New Testament, a, a missionary, Paul, most of all, knew what Christ is, and he indicated by what he did, the kind of person named for him, imitating him so brilliantly that he revealed his own master in himself his own soul being transformed through his accurate imitation of his prototype. Let me break this down. Don't, don't zone off. Don't pull out your phone. Just, yeah, just stick with me right now. So what, what, what is St. Gregory saying? St. Gregory is saying, man, there was somebody who imitated so perfectly what does it mean to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and being all in to being in, of him, that he pursued his prototype. So he's, he's using this language of saying that we are a type and we're trying to pursue the prototype or the archetype or the anti-type, whatever term you want to use, that we are like, we are like, we are the icon of the original icon. We're a replica of him. So, it's, so for us, do you see yourself, do you label yourself of being a type of the prototype? Or do, you, do, we, do we follow our own logic and we just follow whatever social media or YouTube tells me that defines me? 
why don't you ask yourself that I'm the type of a prototype, of an archetype? So that Paul no longer seemed to be living and speaking, but Christ himself seemed to be living in him. This man, Paul, knew the significance of the name of Christ for us, saying that Christ is, and he went through a huge list. I'm not going to go through it all right now. He gave him this huge list of, of like, St. Gregory is so overwhelmed by all the different titles in which St. Paul gives to Jesus. Like, the more titles that you give something, the more it paints a picture of what it is. So St. So, so Gregory is so overwhelmed with St. Paul writing all these things that describe who Jesus is. And he continues, and many other such things that are not easily enumerated. When all of these phrases are put next to each other, each one of the terms makes its own contribution to a revelation of what is signified by being named after Christ. And each provides for us a certain emphasis. Each name that we find being used in the early centuries to describe Jesus paints one aspect of who he is. When all these phrases are put next to each other, uh, sorry, uh, let, me, let me read from the beginning of the slide. When all these phrases are put next to each other, each one of the terms makes its own contribution to a revelation of what is signified by the name by being named after Christ. And each provides for us a certain emphasis. To the extent that we take these concepts into our souls, they are all indications of the unspeakable greatness of the gift for us. However, since the rank of kingship underlies all worth and power and rule, by this title, the royal power of Christ is authoritatively and primarily indicated for the anointing of kingship, as we learn in the historical books, comes first. So St. Gregory is saying the number one thing, title, that is given to Jesus first is king. And all the force of the other titles depends on that of royalty. For this reason, the person who knows the separate elements included under it also knows the power encompassing these elements. But it is the kingship itself that declares what the title of Christ means. Therefore, since, thanks to our good master, we are sharers, partners of the greatest and most divine and first of names, those honored by the name of Christ being called Christians, here's the, the, the key, it is necessary that there be seen in us also all the connotations of this name, so that the title should not become a misnomer in our case, but that our life be a testimony of it. You understand this logic here. Being something does not result from being called something, <laughs> right? Being something does not result from being called something. If I say I am an all-star NBA basketball player, that's, my, that's what I, just because I say that doesn't mean I am that. As much as I would love that, I, I, that's, that's not reality. Being something does not result from being called something. The underlying nature, the underlying nature, whatever it happens to be, is discovered through the meaning attached to the name. Do you know what your underlying nature is? Is holy. Your underlying nature is divine. Your underlying nature is that you are worthy to be a child of royalty. This is our underlying nature. And we are surrounded by, by, by everything we see online, everything we're consuming that pushes us down, that, that brings us down. Our past brings us down. But our underlying nature is that we are divine. 
that your father tells you, you are worthy to be my child. And let's be partners together. And I'm going to ingrain in you the name above all names that you are Christian, that you are now the icon. You are a type of me. You are beautifully made as an image of me. Now live that way. Don't just settle for the name. Don't reduce the name to just it being a title. Do not reduce the name to something you do on Sundays. Live it out for you to know that you are king of royalty. To the question, is Jesus your king? Nobody can answer that for you except you. And I don't want you to feel guilty if you are not in a position yet to answer that fully. But you do not know what lies on the other side. When you surrender yourself to your heavenly father who beautifully wove you together in your mother's womb for an amazing purpose and is working in your story right now, you do not know what lies on the other side for you to be able to declare I am not a Christian just by name, I'm a follower of him. And I'm taking on this royal name that I belong to him. Nothing else will define me. Everything else comes secondary. But first, I am a child of royalty. Let us stand for a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, so many things weigh us down, and we try to find the answers to our life problems, to our aches, to our issues, to our life problems. We try to find the solutions everywhere else except by finding rest in you. But Lord, just as St. Gregory has told us, that our underlying nature is to be divine is you that we are beautifully created to be a reflection of your glory lord we pray that we can fight the, the the battle of not just reducing you to just a good luck charm or just somebody we go to when things are bad but we can embrace a partnership a relationship intimacy with you but it requires us for us to embrace the question if you are our king lord i know this requires humility i know it requires surrendering from our side but Lord, I pray that, that, that me, first and foremost, I can push down my, my ego, my, my, my pride, to be able to say fully that what defines me is not priest, it's not husband, it's not father, nothing, but that I am your child and I take on your name, being labeled and identified as a Christian. Through the prayers of your saints, Lord, hear us as we pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.